This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Front center for all of us today is what happened in Barcelona yesterday, of course. Uh, another vehicle driven down a road filled with pedestrians. As of we speak right now, the, uh, the death toll is at 14 and many, many more injured in this terrorist attack that occurred in Spain yesterday. Joining us to talk about this is Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, as he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Morning, Phil. How are you doing today? I'm well, Bill. How are you today? Good. Uh, I, again, I, I want to say this shocked us yesterday, but this is the eighth attack in, in Europe in the last eight months. Uh, there's a pattern here, isn't there? Well, there certainly is, and the pattern is is that the, the terrorist plots are getting simpler and simpler to carry out. So, you know, we all know that getting access to a vehicle is simple. Most people own vehicles. And I think what's happening is people that are carrying out these, these incidents are actually finally paying attention to what the terrorist groups have been saying. They've been saying it for years. It's, you know, um, just do what you can. Uh, if you can't build a bomb, that's okay. You can take a knife from your kitchen or you can drive your car into a crowd. So it, it's what this is going to sound awful, but I call it Nike terrorism. Just do it. And, and it looks like people are finally paying attention and we're seeing the results. This is a this is almost the new normal now, isn't it? This this vehicular homicide that's going on. I think it is, but we got to be really, really, really careful with this, Bill. It is the new normal, but it's still rare, right? This is the first major attack in Spain since two thousand and four. So it's been thirteen years since an attack in Spain. So yes, it, you know we're seeing it across European cities. Um, you know, every couple of weeks you hear of one, but it's not daily. This is not Mogadishu, and it's not Kabul, where, where attacks really are daily, and and the death toll in, in like in in. Uh, in Kabul and Afghanistan, for example, they lose 13 people every attack twice a day as opposed to once every six months. So I'm not trying to downplay the, the severity of the attack in Spain, but let's keep it in perspective. Well, let's let's talk about the perspective on this. Uh, when, when things like this occur, the question that always comes out, is this part of a greater effort uh, by, by terrorists? Is this organized? Is, is this part of a terror network? Are, are we clear on exactly who these people were and what their their motivation was, Phil? Not yet. I mean, the motivation is clear. There is the most extremist. So they buy yeah. into this, this grandiose notion that Islam's under attack and it's all the West's fault and we, we got we to hit back. What we don't know, Bill, is are they directed? Are they inspired? Are they trained? Looks like the second attack, which took place, I think, late last night, early this morning, a uh, bunch of guys in a van in a, in a town about 100 kilometers south of Barcelona, they were wearing fake suicide vests, which tells you something. It means they probably weren't trained because they couldn't build a real suicide vest. So it's a bit of all the above. But the ideology underlying it is pretty well similar. It's all about this notion that, hey, this is you know this is how we see the world. And this is how we're going to impose it on you. And and we saw the response yesterday, of course, just after the attack. Of course, uh, uh, you know, ISIS claimed uh, responsibility for this. But it, and I'm not again as as you, uh, I'm not trying to be catty about this and be flippant about this. But I mean, ISIS probably claimed responsibility for the thunderstorm we had yesterday too. Anytime well, they see something like this, they want to jump on side and say, yeah, that was us. Oh, you're absolutely right, Bill. I mean, you know, it, it, may, it may very well be them. They may have been inspired. They may have downloaded ISIS bullshit material from the internet, whatever kind of thing. But it doesn't matter because it doesn't cost ISIS anything to claim it. And if they do claim it, especially now when ISIS is under a lot of a lot of pressure in Iraq and Syria, you know, they've lost Mosul. They're going to lose Raqqa. They're, they're, they're shrinking. They're not growing like they were two years ago. So for them to say, hey, we're still here and we're, we're behind the attack makes us look bigger than we probably are. Yeah, and I, I, interesting about that, that you mentioned what's going on right now in the Middle East and, and the attacks on, on ISIS right now and what's happening in, in what we thought was their stronghold. But it's, uh, it's, it's, it's sort of like, you know, jello. I mean, as soon as you push it one way, it goes someplace else because now we're hearing stories, Phil, that, uh, that ISIS is starting to rear its ugly head and actually gain a foothold in Indonesia now. So it's, it's, it's like they're looking for someplace. Okay, there's too much pressure here. We're going on here. 
but but we still don't know yet just what kind of an extent they have. I mean, these people could have been acting alone. They could have been people who just said, hey, we want to kill some people today, which I, I guess, on the other hand, is of little consequence to the people that were on that street in Barcelona yesterday. Well, you're right. And if you allow me two personal plugs, I'd appreciate Please. it. I mean, first of all, I've, I've talked about this a lot on my blog. I on do. My yeah, that's where I saw it, yeah. About people just wanting to kill because they like to kill. Secondly, um, I have a book coming out in about a month that talks about, you know, post-ISIS, where these guys go next. And in fact, I do talk about Indonesia. I talk about North Africa. I talk about parts of, you know, the Arabian Peninsula and parts of India. Like, they are people who are inspired by this kind of garbage are already in place around the world. Now, whether or not we're going to see the same severity and and sort of, uh, you know, state structure as we saw in Iraq is, is, is unlikely. But the, problem, the, the bottom line is this isn't going to go away anytime soon. And, you know, last week there was a, an ex-head uh, of MI5, which is the British uh, equivalent of CSIS, where mm-hmm. used to work, who said, we're in this for 20 to 30 years. And I had to sort of smile at myself saying, well, I've been saying 20 to 50 years when I give my talk. So, unfortunately, it's with us to say it's not going to be daily, especially not in a place like Canada. But it's not going to disappear anytime soon. All right. Uh, so I'm sorry to be so negative. No, no. Listen, it's realistic, I, and we need to have that discussion because I, I don't want to look at this stuff filled through rose-colored glasses, and I think some people do that. And and then, as you mentioned, the other extreme is people think, "Oh my God, there's a terrorist behind every tree." But I mean, you know, let me go back to your days in in, in CSIS and and dealing with these things and getting some of the intel that you did on a pretty regular basis right now. Uh, how do you how do you make those that 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 the conclusion about exactly what's going to happen next, where we should go. I mean, I saw Trump, you know, tweeted today, say our borders are stronger than ever. That's that's of little consequence, really. I mean, you know, this 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 is this is not necessarily imported terrorism. This is just people that f- feel they can do whatever they want, whenever they want. Well, and, and the thing is, Bill, in Canada, every single plot that I worked on through the two thousands or the into twenty tens, they're all homegrown plots. They are by Canadians, born Canadians, raised Canadians, who haven't get radicalized through some kind of personalized process. They, you know, they, they, they were in contact with people. They weren't planned from abroad. They were planned in Scarborough, and they were planned in Ottawa, and they were planned in Strathroy, and they were planned, you know, in, in, in Victoria. So, you know, saying it's all happening over there, well, yeah, what happens abroad does have an impact, but it's still happening here in Canada. But again, an important point, and I like your point about, you know, not panicking. There's not a terrorist behind every tree. Terrorism in Canada is rare. It is not even close to being existential. We have to, be, you know, so let, let's make sure it ceases there we have the resources to deal with it. But let's not panic and start going all Trumpian about ban all immigrants and ban this and ban that, because that's simply counterproductive and it's not very Canadian as far as I'm concerned. Well, yeah, and, and to put this in context, I mean, it's it's all well and good for the president to talk about, you know, strengthening the borders. But uh, let's not forget there was an incident like this just a couple of days ago in Charlottesville, and it was an American that did it. Well, and this is it. And I, and I would argue, I'm not a right-wing expert. I, I did Islamist extremism for 30 years, so I'm not, I'm not you know, an expert on the neo-Nazis and white supremacists, but... What I know, based on my years as an analyst, is the threat from, the, from that right wing is orders of magnitude bigger than the jihadi threat in the state. Uh, and I'm not sure they realize that, because they've all been focusing on ISIS and al-Qaeda, all that kind of stuff. We have a similar threat here in Canada, but it's, it's much, much lower than in the states. Uh, and I'm, and it, might, it might grow, who knows, but it, it's certainly not the threat that the, uh, the jihadis pose. So, yeah, there are threats out there, but let's, again, put it in perspective. It's Friday, so it's going to be a wonderful late summer weekend here in, in Ontario. Let's enjoy it. Let's let's ask about the ramifications, though, Phil, as as we look at this, because one of the nagging questions, of course, and and you saw the uh, the pundits all over the world as they they weighed in on this yesterday after the attack, and 
you know, it's, it's, well, is this part of a grander scheme? Is there some sort of a strategy here? Uh, and, and you've, you've been doing this for years and years and you've been tracking these people and, and, and doing profiles on these people right now. Give, give me your sense of what, how organized or, or not organized, I guess, these, these attacks actually are and, and whether this is part of a grander scheme. It's really hard to say, Bill. It really is all over the map. Some people literally are just, you know, they kind of get radicalized in a small group and they go off and do something. Low knockers, we call them. Some things are more, you know, are more organized. You look at the attacks in Paris in November of 2015. That was highly organized, obviously. What happened in Barcelona seems to be somewhere in the middle. Clearly it was organized. There's at least two vans. There seem to have been two targets. Who knows if the guys had training abroad? Who knows if they were training foreign fighters for that matter, which is a whole other issue that we need to worry about here in Canada. Is guys coming back from Islamic State and mm-hmm. things like that? So, it, you know, each case is going to be different. Um, Islamic State would like you to believe it's highly organized because that makes people afraid. It means sure. that we're everywhere and we can do whatever we want. So um, I'm going to wait until the intelligence comes out and see what the Spanish find in terms of, you know, just to what degree of organizational skill these people had. It, it, it's somewhere along a spectrum. It's way too early to tell. Let me try to assuage some of those concerns that I'm sure people have these days, and, and there's some legitimacy to those concerns too, Phil. Let's make no mistake about that. But 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 again, go back to your your background in this and the work you've done on this in years, uh, four years rather, and and talk to me about about what we do uh, on this side uh, to try to to find out what's going on, when it might happen, uh, the five eyes, the the coordination that goes on these days that wasn't there some years ago. Yeah, so it it, it it's all of the above. So. So clearly Canada is very privileged um, to work in an environment, like you mentioned, the Five Eyes, the Anglo Partners. It's the world's best intelligence club. Uh, we share information on a daily basis with our partners to get an understanding of threat. We also share to a lesser degree with other partners, like the Spanish, for example, or the Germans or the French. So we, we have a relationship with them as well. The key is, I think, a couple of keys. First is to make sure that your security services have the resources necessary to do this. They'll always ask for more. You know, this is this tight budget times. I mean, thesis doubled after 9-11. That's not going to happen again. So, because they use more resources, yes, but they're a good organization and they're very qualified. So is the RCMP. And as citizens, we again, we have to accept that security intelligence is necessary. And I, I know thesis gets a lot of criticism. I read it in the paper every day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all oh, we're spending too much money or they're, they're cowboys and they're not expecting the, respecting the charter and they're doing illegal things. Uh, no, they're not, actually. Um, they're legislatively mandated and controlled. So, you know, we got to put a little more trust in our security services. We're very good and stop 99.9% of the plot. Not 100, because 100 is impossible. But they do a damn good job, and we have to support them in it. Well, and this, you mentioned Strathroy a couple of minutes ago. I mean, there's a classic example of that. I mean, the, the heads up on that actually came from uh, U.S. sources, didn't it? Absolutely. I mean, and this just goes to shows the, the, the depth and the breadth of the relationship. I and mean, people were very critical, like, oh, why did it take the FBI? To my, to my response is, who cares where the information came from? It was shared in a timely way. And because it was shared in a timely way, no one died except for the terrorists. And that's a really important point. And it just goes to show that we've built these relationships over many years. But at Strathroy also gives us a really good sense that it can happen anywhere. It doesn't happen every day everywhere, but it can. And that's, that's, that, that's, the, that's the fear of terrorism, right? You don't know where it's going to happen and when it's going to happen. But again, I, I keep pointing this out. We can't live in fear that it's going to happen somewhere to you just because you're happy to rock, walking down King Street, for example, in Hamilton, or you're up in the escarpment. Like, like don't let your life be ruled by fear because this is still a very, very infrequent occurrence. But fear is irrational, right? That's why it works. Exactly. What about that local link, though? What about that that, that grassroots level? Uh, RCMP, CSIS are, are doing great work on this in coordination with, as you mentioned, so many other uh, authorities around the world. But but is there that link? Is there that awareness? Is there that expertise 
at the local level with local police uh, forces to, to be able to handle this and spot these sorts of things? It's getting a lot better. Uh, we did, I mean, when I was with the service, we did a ton of training with local law enforcement on, on radicalization and what it looks like and when you should be concerned. I'll also, you know, throw a, a call out to communities. They're getting on board now as well. For, for years, they were in denial. And, and I, I'm very happy to report they're no longer, or most are no longer in denial. And they want to work with the RSMP. They want to work with police to identify people. So that's been a positive development as well, because we're all in this together. You know, CSIS and the RCMP are only as good as the sources they have and the cooperation they have from Canadians. And so the more cooperation and collaboration, the better. Here's here's a link that, uh, that you and I have talked about in the past, and I think it's essential on this. An awful lot of the time as we do exploring about who these people are that are carrying out these acts, we find out that there's a very strong social media contact, whether it's uh, on the Internet, uh, whether it's going to some of these websites that we've talked about in the past. There was a, a reticence in, in the early days, Phil, uh, from those servers to actually cooperate with authorities. Is that improving? Oh, that's, that's, that's a tough one. Um, yes and no. Yeah, we could, I mean, we could spend the next three hours talking about that, I'm sure. Yeah, well, there's a lot of privacy issues. You know, yeah. Google talks about taking stuff down. YouTube talks about taking stuff down. There are charter issues, there are First Amendment issues, there are people saying, hey, it's only speech. Uh, I don't happen to believe that. I think speech is problematic, but if you ask me where to draw the line, I couldn't. So I think the most egregious stuff, the beheading videos, the clear call for violence, they're doing a better job of getting, of getting, uh, getting it off, but there's two problems. One is it gets replicated within seconds, and secondly, we, you know, talk about the dark web. You talk about places you can't find, yeah. and, 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 and places where people in the know, they know where to go and where to get it. And and so if you can't get it on your on your Bing server or on your you know your Safari you know uh, search screen you'll get it somewhere else. So it's it's very much a cat and mouse game. Um, we're doing better. Uh, Twitter took down 120,000 accounts uh, just uh, recently earlier on this year linked to Islamic State. 120,000. And my guess is that probably most of those were recreated within minutes. So it, it's it's tough. Is it, when something like this happens, as, as it did in Barcelona yesterday, is there always a concern about copycats? Um, I'm not sure about that. I mean, I, I've heard that analogy before. Yeah. Apparently, you do see that with other types of criminality, you know, like kidnappings or murders or whatever kind of thing. I, I personally, I haven't seen that myself. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but uh, someone might say, hey, I can do that, and, and, and maybe we'll see it. Um, whether it'll happen tomorrow, or next week, or next month, I really have no idea, but I don't think that's a, that's a huge issue with terrorism. I mean, I could be wrong, but in my experience, we, we didn't see it in Canada. We didn't see people, oh, well, look what the Toronto 18 tried to do, or look what uh, you know the guy in Victoria tried to do. Let's do that. We haven't seen it in this country, so I would say it's less of a concern. Um, your intel service is just going to want to figure out who's out there, what is the threat level, how do we need to follow them, and then what action can we take to stop them? All right, you've uh, piqued my interest now. When's the book coming out? Uh, September 15th. It's called uh, The Lesser Jihad, Bringing Islamist Extremism to the World, and it's basically what happens to ISIS and all the people that are part of it. And I looked at 20 different conflicts from Nigeria to the Philippines, um, and there, unfortunately, there's lots of mayhem and, and warfare these people can, can find themselves in. Look forward to Look at uh, Let's uh, make a date. You and I have to talk about that when the book is released, okay? I appreciate that, Bill. Thank Love you very it. much. Hey, listen, thanks for the time today, Phil. Always a pleasure. Me too. Bye-bye. Phil Gursky, of course, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Earlier this summer, City Council asked staff to come back with a uh, report about the HSR, uh, an overview such as it was, about uh, things like uh, enhancements, you know, because they're, they're talking about doing some, some extra work and putting some money into the system right now, uh, the cost of overtime, uh, ridership, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the report was uh, issued, and it's not a pretty picture. 
And it's uh, interesting. I mean, the timing, I guess, is, is rather interesting on this as well, given the fact that uh, the HSR, the Amalgamated Transit Union right now, is, is asking, uh, some would suggest demanding, that they be uh, the ones who operate and uh, maintain the uh, upcoming LRT system. Uh, with that, doing a great job, as it turns out, with the, the current system right now, too. Ridership is down. There's something going on here. Because we all talk, and, and we've talked on this show, we've had advocates on here, just about anybody who is on uh, elected representative at the provincial or the municipal level has said transit's the thing, we've got to invest in transit. We're not getting the message here in Hamilton for some reason. Dan McKinnon is the uh, general manager of public works for the city of Hamilton. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this morning. Dan, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Bill. Uh, notwithstanding the numbers here, I mean, this is a, a rather troubling report, isn't it? It is. I, you know, there's lots of uh, really good information in it, and I know that one of the you know the focuses of attention on this was the ridership, and there's no question that it's uh, declined in the last couple of years. But right, ridership does ebb and flow over the years, and I'll, I'll point to the the period between 2012 and 2014. Ridership actually went up uh, by almost a half a million rides per year, but subsequently, since 2014, it's declined again. So we're we're seeing that ebbing and flowing, but. I think the uh, the 2014 figure was probably an all-time high of ridership for uh, for uh, HSR and transit in Hamilton. And uh, you know, there's a there is a variety of factors that will influence uh, people's uh, decisions to ride in transit. And obviously, one of them is their their ability to get to where they want to go with certainty on time, and that they, they can rely on the uh, the service to get them there when they need to be there because many folks take it to work. Mm-hmm. Also, the experience that they have when they're on the bus is important, very important as well. And uh, so we, we recognize that, and um, but we also understand that uh, there, there's some influences that aren't necessarily in our control as well, and one of the things that we point to is, is gas prices. So when gas prices were rising in 2012, 13, and 14, that was probably behind uh, some of the uh, the increase in the ridership, but again, we, can't, we, we don't know that with certainty. In 2015 and 2016, as part of our 10-year transit strategy, we increased fares 15 cents each year, and we do know that there is a, a bit of a rebound that happens when you increase fares. While it does help with your revenue, it does have a short-term uh, negative effect on ridership. So there's a lot of influences there that can uh, can um, affect ridership one way or the other. So it is difficult to kind of point to one and say that's the, that's the single factor that's having most influence, but uh, we're continuing to monitor it to see if we can uh, try to improve that. Yeah, and I'm not trying to downplay the numbers here because they are what they are, and, they, and we do need to have that discussion. But this is not a Hamilton-only problem, is it? No, I think we're, we're seeing across the, across the country that there is uh, kind of a, a, a decline in ridership. Um, I think this year it's stabilizing a little bit, so I don't know if we can point to the same factors. Uh, across the entire country with respect to gas prices and that kind of thing, or if other transit authorities are raising their fares as well. But uh, it's something that we have to really keep an eye on so that we can that we can manage it properly. Let's, let's, let's talk about some of those numbers. And uh, there's always an expectation, Dan, and, and, and I think this is on behalf of the councillors, I think on, on behalf of urbanists and, 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 and certainly staff, that with all the talk and with all the money, and there's been a considerable amount of money that has been invested in transit, that you would see some rewards and you'd see an increase in ridership. That, this has got to be frustrating when you see these numbers after all that, that your staff has done and what council has done uh, to try to, to get people to get on the, uh, the public transit system. It is frustrating, you know, and I think councils really put their money where their mouth is. They've, they have uh, invested considerably in transit in the last number of years, and their support for the 10-year strategy is a uh, 
probably the greatest uh, tribute to that support. And uh, so it is frustrating for them. It is frustrating for us as well. Um, I think we do have to take a, you know, take a, a fresh perspective on it to see whether or not there's a different strategy to try to entice people to get on the bus. And uh, so that's something we're, we're going to be doing going forward in the next year or so. Uh, you know, partly because of LRT, you know, we know that when the construction starts on LRT, we're going to have to provide service in a different way. So I think uh, the fact that we're experiencing lower ridership, we're continuing to make these investments. We know we have to do something a little different, certainly with the provision of service in the lower city. It's probably a great time to just take a fresh look at the system and see if there's a, you know, a, a different way to provide service so that we can uh, not only improve the customer service and the experience for people, but to, to try to uh, to try to attract more people to ride uh, the HSR. Well, let's get into that if we can, because that's somewhat of a philosophical discussion, I guess. But nonetheless, it has to be, I think, one of the the, the elements in in the debate about what we're going to do here and and the kind of investments we need to make. Uh, you know, time and time again, when we talk about public transit on this program, Dan, uh, the the respect and that we get for the HSR is there. We understand that. But nine times out of ten, the, reco- the the common thing I always hear from from l- people that don't take the bus is, you know what, it's not convenient, and it doesn't get me there in a timely fashion, um, and I have to get too far. So, in other words, th- those things that would gravitate to or make people gravitate to public transit, we don't seem to be there yet. Uh, how how do we how do we handle that sort of a situation, and how do we change that mindset? Well, that's that's the big question, and, and when I talk about you know taking a fresh perspective and, and taking a fresh new look at the system, we need to we, we likely need to look to see is there a different way that maybe we can configure the system, or how do we reach those people who aren't currently taking the bus but would like to, and, and provide that level of service to them so that they know they can rely on it, and uh, that that's the work that's going to be undertaken in the next uh, twelve months or so is to take take that fresh perspective on it and just see how how can we get out to the outer reaches. I, I'm a good example of that. I live in Ancaster. And I would love to uh, take transit and, and uh, that to uh, to work where I work downtown near City Hall. And but it's just for me right now, it's not it's not a convenient option for me. So we understand that. And um, you know, some of the things that are going to help us is we we I think as an organization, you know, in transit and really the broader city, uh, there's there's a, a stronger move now to embrace technology. And and what I mean by that is getting data out of the system to really understand what are the routes that are you know, uh, more viable than others and where are there opportunities from a, from a census perspective where we think we can attract new riders to the system. So uh, a most recent example of that is we're putting automated passenger counters on uh, a number of our buses. It's part of the project that was put forward for the, uh, and we have federal government support for it. So uh, I'm hoping within the next year, year and a half, all of our buses will have automated passenger counters on it. That will start to give us much more reliable and discreet data that we can look at to help us understand where are people riding, how many people are getting on the bus, how long are they staying on the bus. Um, that's the type of data that we need to help us make better decisions around where do we plan new routes and that kind of thing. I mean, we always look at the B line and say, well, they, you know, that's the way the transit system should be. Uh, it, it seems to be the one that's most used. I guess that's where most of the ridership is uh, on a consistent level anyway. But with the growth that's going on in other parts of the city right now, up on the mountain and certainly through Waterdown and up in, uh, in Binbrook, uh, you'd think that you'd see a, 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 at least an increase in some of the transit usage there too, but that hasn't actually happened yet. No, and that's, that's one of uh, the priorities that we have when we look at the system. Not only do we have to look at where people are living, we have to look at where people are working. We have you know, a really growing business park in North Glenbrook, uh, up at the in, kind of in the El Friday area in that, that region of town. We have... Uh, you know, the Ancaster Business Park's been very successful uh, in attracting new business. 
And we know that a lot of the folks who work in those areas uh, are likely going to need transit. So how do we not only service the residential uh, or potential residential users out in those areas, but how do we get people to those employment nodes throughout the city is going to be important for us as well. So all that has to get baked into to, uh, to the analysis. And then, like I said, that's, uh, you know, I'm hoping within a year, year and a half, we'll have uh, much better answers and we'll start to see some of the fruits of any of those changes that we can make to the system. What about geography? Let's talk a little bit about that, Dan. This is a, a rather unique city from a geographical standpoint. It's not a grid like a, in Toronto where, you know, it starts at the lake and just kind of goes northeast and west from there. Uh, and everything's kind of in a, in a grid pattern like that. We have an escarpment. We have uh, nodes like Benbrook and, and Waterdown, uh, which are kind of hard to get to from from, from downtown or, or vice versa in situations like that. that that's got to be a challenge. It is. And, you know, you're, 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 you're identifying something that's kind of a, a key issue that I think we want to look at. Um, you know, I think in many ways Hamilton is a grid pattern. There's no question that we have the escarpment, which presents some pretty unique challenges and but I don't. I don't know that we uh, that we would dismiss the idea of the grid. Uh, certainly, we would have to focus uh, transit routes that go up and down the escarpment on the accesses that are available to us. But that's likely something we'll take a look at going forward. If you look at the way we provide transit right now, it's more of a uh, a spoken hub wheel kind of uh, pattern where we mm-hmm. have the transit terminal. So, so we're, when when I talk about a fresh perspective and taking a look at the uh, the transit network, we're we're going to put all options on the table, and we're gonna we're gonna you know really kind of try to think out of the box as to um, you know what 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 opportunities are out there for us to try to improve the the customer service, the reliability, and the viability of it. You know there there is another element to this as well when we talk about kind of the money and the investments that's been made over the, over the last number of years, and, and there has been considerable amount of that. You know, this, the service that we provide is really a mass transit system for a couple hours in the morning and for a couple hours in the afternoon and the morning and evening peaks. And then beyond that, it's, it really, in many cases, is more of a community service. So, so when we talk about viability, we'd like to see the, the kind of the cost revenue ratio for the system to be in the high 40s, 50%. Uh, but we also know that there's, there's areas of our community where, where people really rely on transit who are, um, you know, uh, don't aren't aren't living in neighborhoods where they're wealthy and and uh, and so when we don't have uh, you know high ridership in those areas we can't just exclude those from uh, because they might not meet our our criteria for cost revenue so so there really is a delicate balance in trying to make sure that we not only move masses of people in the morning and evening peaks but we still provide that level of service to people who really need it um, who may not have other options. Let's talk about some of the numbers then, because that's included in this report too. This is a very all-encompassing, uh, I, I think, uh, snapshot of, of what's going on. Uh, projected budget shortfall of about two point five million dollars. One of the contributing factors of that is overtime. What's going on there? Well, I think there's uh, there's probably a number of things going on there. I, I, you know, certainly one of the things that I've learned about transit in the last ten months that uh, I probably didn't perceive before is. It, it's a tough job. I mean, you know, the, the, the folks who operate buses, they're, uh, um, you know, it, it may not uh, look as hard as it actually is. Um, but there's also been other things that have come into play with respect to changes in provincial legislation and connect collective bargaining language and that kind of thing. So one of the challenges that we've had in HSR is we haven't had uh, the resources to really monitor that closely. That's one of the changes that we're going to be making uh, very soon here is to put a dedicated resource around the you know the absenteeism and to study that properly to make sure we understand uh, why people aren't showing up for work um, you know when I look across public works most of the services that my group provides when somebody calls in sick we can kind of stretch for a day and we can still get the service out there uh, 
transit is one of those areas you can't do that. I mean, you can't, when someone calls in sick, we're not going to park a bus. We have to call somebody else in to, uh, to drive in. And often that, that, uh, that means overtime. So it's very, uh, it's very sensitive that way to absenteeism. So, uh, it's, it's, we're, I guess the short answer is we're going to put place that a lot more focus on that so that we can better understand what is it that's driving our absenteeism numbers because there, there are a number of influences that can do that. Well, anecdotally, I know you haven't done an in-depth report on that, but anecdotally, have you heard anything of that? I mean, you know, when we look at absenteeism, and that's a problem in many municipalities, of course, in, in, in the workforce, but when you look at things like essential services like police and fire, you can say, okay, fine, it's a physical job and, and there can be injuries and things of that nature. Uh, and and I, I don't disagree with you. I mean, driving a bus for a number of hours uh, can be a problem. It's it's rather onerous, and, and it has its challenges. I get that. But there's an awful lot of absenteeism right now. Is it, is it people that are legitimately sick? Is it people that are just booking and saying, I don't want to go to work today? Yeah. What, what's your sense? My, my sense is it's a, it's a collection of all of that, um, to be honest with you. And, uh, you know, I think we're hovering around 15% right now. We'd uh, I think, I think it's a reasonable expectation that maybe we can drive that down to 10 or 11%. So there's no question that we can we can drive it down. I think there's an opportunity to drive it down, but you certainly won't eliminate it. So so although we highlight it that, you know, it's a big number, uh, we'll never get it to zero. That's just not going to happen. But, uh, but we do think there's an opportunity there to drive that down if we pay more attention to it and we try to understand better what's what's the root cause of, uh, of it. But uh, it, it is a complex issue because there's probably four or five significant drivers behind that number. What about customer satisfaction? And that's something that, that doesn't get a whole lot of attention and it doesn't seem to be part of the discussion, but I know you're aware of it and you're very concerned about it in all departments and with public works and every other department at the city. But we we get a lot of negative feedback. And I know you've heard some of this from people that, well, tell us that they used to use the HSI, don't anymore because they don't like the drivers, they don't like the service. How do you, how do you respond to some of those criticisms? I, I think it's a fair criticism, but at the same time, I would say that, you know, what, what the kind of your, your maybe your average listener doesn't see is all the emails that I get from people who are complimenting the service. Um, so I, I'm certainly not going to refute the fact that we've got some We've got some image problems there, and we've had some uh, some experiences where the service wasn't right. And uh, so, higher higher uh, focus and expectation and training around the customer service experience for people when they're on the bus that's definitely a priority for us. But uh, I, you know, I don't want to. You, you know, I think it's it's not uh, uh, you know unusual for human. You know, it's human nature for people when they're 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 more apt to call in and and, and make noise when they've had a bad experience uh, versus when they've had a good one. And I can tell you, I do get lots of emails about. Uh, about people who've had very good experiences on the bus. Again, having said that, we know we've got a challenge there. We've got an issue, and uh, the best way to deal with that is to, is to uh, just make it a cultural change that the customer service experience is the number one priority, and sometimes that requires training. And, you know, and ironically, when you're going to train a bus operator, you've got to take them off the bus, and sometimes that drives up your overtime. So, so all these things are interlinked. Um, you know, it certainly feels like we've got a bit of a culture thing there that we've got to work with as well, and... Uh, but it's all on. Uh, it's all going to get baked into the solution here, and I am very optimistic that the conversation is going to be very different uh, within the next year or two about uh, about transit. Yeah, I know you've got to be very careful when you look at stats like that, though, don't you? When you know, if somebody were to say, "Well, seventy-five percent of the calls are all negative about the HSR," uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's human nature. Very rarely do you get people that will actually take the time to call and say, "Hey, I had a great experience." They usually call because they've got some some concerns. So that's that that number can be skewed just a little bit. I get that. But is there some concern? I'm not going to ask you to wade too deeply into the politics of this right now, but uh, there's this LRT thing coming up, Dan. 
Um, and, and the concern some people have right now is, look, at with this kind of an investment right now, with reduced ridership, uh, are people going to use the LRT, is, or are we going to? Are we looking at a money pit here? Is this going to be a, an exercise in futility that we're going to build this fabulous uh, transit system with light rail transit and and have reduced ridership on that as well, which is obviously going to be somewhat problematic from a financial standpoint. Well, I you know I think I think the the LRT project has been an abundance of information that's been shared with the community about this project for a long period of time. It's, it's a transformational project. It's, it's, it's one of those projects that's about the future. Uh, there's certainly a lot of other things that are benefits that come from an LRT, and we've all heard this about the growth and development and, you know, uh, being a world-class city and that. So I think it's, it's, uh, it's probably not uh, the most useful to just focus on one aspect of it. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think uh, uh, when you look at most large, sophisticated cities that have healthy transit systems, they often have an LRT as a component of that. So... Um, you know, I'm not sure what else I can add to the discussion there. Well, again, that's the politics of it, and that's up to the city council to decide, not you. And I, I, I agree with you. I don't think it's something we need to have, absolutely. But uh, when you see reduced numbers like this, it is somewhat problematic. Uh, you're on the case. So that's the most important element of this, I guess, right now, and you're going to work on this information. And uh, with that in mind, uh, we'll uh, certainly have further discussions about this. Thanks so much. I, got, I know you got to run into that council meeting right now, so thanks for taking the time with us, Dan. My pleasure, Bill. Dan McKinnon, of course, the uh, general manager of Public Works, talking about reduced uh, usage, of course, on HSR and uh, concern about, uh, well, absenteeism, which is causing overtime costs to skyrocket. That's one of the concerns we need around budget time, isn't it? You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Busy day here in the Hamilton courtroom. Alleged hacker uh, Karim Baratov is expected to tell a judge today that he will forego his extradition hearing, or will he? Uh, what are the next steps? What are the implications? Uh, Eric Goldkind, Toronto defense lawyer, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to get into that. Morning, Eric. How are you doing today? Good morning. Great. And you? Uh, fabulous. Uh, finally, a weekend is here, but uh, there's still a lot of business to go through, including uh, the date uh, in court today for uh, for Baratov. Uh, what, what are the expectations? Uh, we're told now that he's not going to fight extradition. Does that surprise you? No, not at all. I mean, his lawyer makes some uh, relatively bizarre comments about the fact that he's not opposing it because, quote, he's bored in jail, end quote. I find that a bizarre... Yeah, that happens a lot, doesn't it? Yeah, that's a bit of a bizarre (laughs) comment, and I won't get into his lawyer's comments. But suffice it to say, I think the young man, if you were asking me, is making a very smart legal decision. He didn't have a leg to stand on to fight this. I can explain this to listeners who don't understand the way it works, but it's relatively simple, and he could have spent a year or two paying enough uh, money and legal fees to afford another one of his uh, fancy cars, and I think what he's done is made a very rational decision that he has to face the music in San Francisco, and there would be very few, if any, uh, right-thinking judges here that would say to our closest ally in the world, you can't have somebody thought to be hacking and causing uh, a fracas uh, down in the U.S. Well, because there have been some, let's say, some controversial situations in the past uh, with people that have been detained in this country that have been, uh, and the U.S. has been seeking extradition. But I, I always thought in, the, in those cases, Ari, the sticking point always was, well, there's the possibility of a death penalty. That's not on the table here. Not on the table here at all, and that's a very good point, and that's one of the reasons, just to explain this, that we wouldn't send somebody, because of that, when you, I mean, everybody now talks about our Charter of Rights and Freedoms. It's the thing that everybody points to with their rights, their rights, their rights, their rights, sort of like in the States, 
their constitution. But one of the keys why somebody wouldn't get extradited is because the death penalty offends our charter. Hacking, driving fast cars, doing things for Russian intelligence agencies, that doesn't offend our charter. And this is a really, really simple set of allegations. And what I like about this prosecution, Bill, is that you know, we now live in a world where crime is essentially borderless. Hacking can take place from the middle of the ocean on a yacht to a bunch of servers in Timbuktu. So the fact that the U.S. government has not let this uh, participant sort of evade detection is important, and I think Canada recognized that very nicely. And now the young man, for whatever reason, because I obviously don't speak to him, says, I will go to San Francisco and face whatever music they're playing for me. And, and that's one of the things that I find intriguing, and I think a lot of our people in this, in this area uh, found intriguing about this situation, uh, Ari, because, you know, we've talked for a long time now about hackers and about this sort of thing and about, you know, the, the, the Internet and, and the people that do these sorts of crimes. But oftentimes we do this in, in, in a rather bizarre fashion. We don't know who they are. They're nameless, faceless people. Uh, this guy lived in my neighborhood. He, he actually lived about four blocks away from where I live. I saw that car going back and forth for a couple of years, and I thought, I wonder who's driving that thing. Now and, I know. Yeah, and and to think that and the, this guy was going into, and doing this stuff on a daily basis in, in Ancaster, of all places, you figure, wow. And, and that's sort of what I like about going back to brass tacks about this story, because one of the things that a lot of listeners, because they talk about this case a lot, are, well, could all of his social media bragging, and posting the pictures and talking about how he's a hacker for hire, come back to bite him in the posterior when he's in court. Because a lot of people think, well, that can't be used against him. Well, it sure can. And he sort of was having, he was sort of wearing, and I mean this literally, a big arrest me sign on his forehead. And that's what happened. And, you know, he's, I guess, unlucky that he happened to live in Canada because if he was living in the middle of the ocean or in Tahiti, or in the Seychelles, or all these other vacation places we can't afford to go, it would have been a lot harder to get him. So, you know, it's just a very unfortuitous thing for him. But I do, by the way, go back to that line where his lawyer said he's bored. Well, probably one of the reasons he's doing this so quickly is because, just as your listeners would know, he did not get bail. If he had gotten bail and was out living amongst us, I think he would have fought this a little bit harder. But when you're stuck in a crappy jail and you know it's a two-year procedure and you're probably going to lose it and still get sent down south, I think you make a wise choice and say, I'll go, I'll go down south. But to your point, though, and I think the judge probably concurred with this, uh, had he received bail, he wouldn't be living among us. He'd probably be long gone by now. And the judge gave a very, and I really applauded the judge because he didn't mince his words. Like a lot of judges, and I'm in court every day, mince their words. They use certain precedent-like, polite ways of putting it. He basically said he didn't think much of this young man. His lawyers didn't like what he said. There's no doubt about that. I'm talking about the judge. But he said, if I let this guy out, we're never going to see him again. How I know we're going to get details about this once this trial gets underway, which I guess is going to be sooner than later now, Ari. But yeah. uh, how how long were they tracking a guy like this? Because I, I mentioned he lives in our neighborhood. He, he went to the same high school our daughter went to in, in Ancaster. Yeah. Uh, they knew this guy was a hacker. The, the kids in the school, the students in the school at Ancaster High knew of this guy, and he bragged even then in his high school days that that's what he did. Uh, that's right. Uh, that, that's, that's so bizarre. 
well, and if you look back at his post, and I really do, I was being sort of not silly about his social, I call it anti-social media, but for his purposes, social media posting, calling attention to himself. Now, let's make no mistake. There's one thing to be a hacker and going in and getting uh, people's credit cards and identity theft, which will get you some attention in Canada, but not enough, because it's a very disturbing crime in Canada that our government for resource and other issues, can't keep up with. But when you start getting into what he's doing involving security services and Russian security services, it's not the Canadian government that really did much here. It's the U.S. government. So you start poking the bear of the FBI and the CIA and various intelligence agencies in Europe and throughout, you're going to get onto the radar pretty quick. And just to add to this, I've actually read the full U.S. Uh, complaint. And just so people understand, the U.S. sends basically a record of the case here so that they can get an extradition, they can get an arrest, they can get the guy committed uh, for extradition. It's very thorough. So they wouldn't arrest somebody, particularly when there's uh, a full investigation going on, until they've done their work to make their case. This is a serious prosecution down there. So nothing would be done willy-nilly overnight. So the fact that he didn't disappear during his bragging, or go live out in the South Pacific. To me, as I said, Bill, he just was wearing a big arrest me sign on his head. And and again, I get the the whole thrust of innocent until proven guilty, and and, and that's the process down there as it yeah. is up in this country too. So uh, I'm not going to you know condemn this guy, and we're not going to you know put the guilty tag on him uh, until no. due process is done. But to your point. Uh, for them to come all the way up to Ancaster, Ontario, and knock on this guy's door, uh, they've got to have their ducks in a row before they even think about doing something like that. They do, and your point actually is a very appreciated one, particularly by me as a defense lawyer. Just to get him extradited or arrested for committal, you don't have to show guilt or innocence. You basically, in layman's terms, just have to show a reasonable case, a reasonable prosecution, a prosecution for a crime that would be a crime in Canada, let alone the states. And when you look through the lengthy, it's a number of pages uh, report of what they say this young man and his cohort cohorts were up to. And, you know, he was doing it strictly for money. It doesn't seem like he had a sort of ISIS or anti-Russia or anti-American like agenda. It was purely for dough and to have those fast cars. You know, you, you, the, the U.S. government made it very clear that they've been watching him for a long time and they can make out a case and we'll see what a uh, a jury or a judge in San Francisco says as to guilt or innocence or if he fights it or pleads, because don't forget, Bill, in the States, given the lengthiness of sentences there versus Canada, which is a sore spot to many Canadians, he's a lot more likely to plead guilty down there than up here. Yeah, 20 years uh, in prison in the U.S. is is what's on the table here uh, if he's convicted on, on all counts. Uh, Eric, you've been doing this for a long time. I, I got to ask you again. We don't want to, you know, start the trial this morning on the program, but I'm looking at some of the comments from his lawyers, uh, and who said that their client had no idea who he was dealing with or exactly what he was doing. That, that sounds a little incongruous with what we know that he was doing. I'm going to choose my words carefully because I've I, watched his lawyer, lawyer give uh, various press conferences. Suffice it to say, uh, until I hear that from Mr. Baratov himself. I will take that with a grain of salt. I think his lawyer is just doing what you hope a lawyer should be doing and putting a best case forward for your client. But, you know, the lawyer isn't under oath any more than I'm under oath. Uh, there's a duty to speak freely and uh, honestly. 
but uh, I, I have in my own mind trouble understanding that a young man this sophisticated thought that he was doing it for Groupon or for uh, eHarmony and uh, was just doing it to get people's dating profiles updated. I'll put it like that. Let's assume, and, and again, you know, the indication is that he's going to waive this or he's going to say he doesn't want to fight this anymore. Uh, with the, your past experience here, how, how quickly does he move down to San Francisco after this, and how quickly does the trial get underway? Well, okay, so good, two good questions, and the last one is, much, uh, is quite fascinating to me as a Canadian criminal defense lawyer. One, he could be on a plane imminently. Now, if his lawyer uh, wasn't pulling a fast one with the press releases yesterday saying he's going to waive it this morning in a brief hearing, and it should be done within the next half hour to confirm if it's done, he could be on a plane imminently, and I mean within a week, within a few days. He's literally given up his rights here, and I think he would be put on a probably private plane to be taken down to the Bay Area to a jail there quickly. Two, trials there, and I really think that we have a lot to learn from the U.S. We don't in a lot of ways, but in this way they do. We do. A trial there will happen much faster than a complicated, significant trial here. We've seen that with Cosby, where a trial happens very quickly after arrest. We see the retrial happening months after we drag our feet here. The Supreme Court has gotten into it, and we're not going to talk about that, but it's something that's a big deal here. Versus there, they get their pedal to the metal, pun intended, given this young man's cars, to get trials going there. What's the difference? Is, is it that we just don't have enough courtrooms? We don't have enough time? We don't have enough judges? Why, why is there such a, a difference and that time lag really up here? How many seconds do I have to answer that one? <laughs> well, I'm on till noon, Ari, so go ahead. <laughs> well, okay, so let me give you, and you cut me off. You know, th- sure. there's, all, there's all this talk, and you, know, you read every article uh, that's covered in the media about this issue that we don't have enough courtrooms or judges or we don't have enough money. And it's always a question of throwing money at the problem. Now the new thing is let's build more courthouses. Well, I can tell you, we build courthouses where there's very little criminal traffic. We don't have enough courthouses or people where, you know, in the middle of Toronto or wherever where there's more crime than you can shake a stick at. But it's really, in my view, a culture. It's more of a cultural thing where there's, I mean, the Supreme Court called it a culture of complacency. I think that's putting it gently You know, we live in a technological age, but we make an accused person. Bill, I'll just make it personal. If you got accused of something you said you didn't do, and you wanted a trial, and you didn't want to mortgage your house to pay your lawyer, you still have to go to court 16 times for stupid appearances to get your disclosure, to get the paper, to do this, in a day and age where everything can be done by email. We don't book things for weeks and months and months and years, and we have judges, and I've Being in court, Bill, it's amazing to me. I've been in court with judges who finish their day at 12 o'clock, literally 12 o'clock because everything falls apart. There's nothing to do. Courts close. Some courts don't help each other. And it's just by 1 o'clock you wonder, what is going on here when you have a 1,000 people sitting in a jail who can't get a trial date till next year? So it's just, it's not a financial problem. I mean, that's my personal view that throwing money at a problem isn't always a solution. Yes, more judges, more crowns, more defense lawyers, blah, blah, blah. But I just think at the end of the day, the U.S. system, that when you get arrested or you get arraigned there, you know, you get put into court Mm -hmm. and you're asked right away, they set your trial date right then and there. And if you're not ready for it, you better have a good reason. And I think there's something to that. 
particularly here, given that we have a lot of people who can't get bail. Mommy and daddy, for example. I mean, Billy, you get arrested for something serious. If your mommy or daddy have passed away or you don't have a best friend to bail you out, you're sitting in a jail cell. And I just think we have a situation where we've got to move things along or you can actually have a stream for people who are out of custody and, you know, they're not in such a rush to get their trial done versus other people who can't go back to work or clear their name or somebody like you with a public profile. You need this dealt with. Why should you have to wait a year and a half or three years the way our timeline is now from the Supreme Court, which is 18 months is reasonable? That's a year and a half to live under a cloud. I don't know. I wouldn't want to be that person. Well, and of course, the subtext of all that, too, is uh, because of those delays, some judges are throwing cases out or deals are cut, and that gets everybody upset, too, because they figure, where's the justice? I will tell you, Bill, the people, because I'm not a big fan of, you know, anti-social media or people commenting who don't work in the courts. The people who comment on this are right. When you have people where the evidence clearly, clearly shows they've murdered somebody, they've raped somebody, they've child abused somebody, and they are walking free because nobody has put a foot down to start their trial within a year or two, and it drags to three or four years or because the dog ate their homework, and somebody who has literally plunged a knife into another human being, and there's witnesses, and people see it, and they're walking free, Bill, I can't think of something else that would shake people's confidence in a justice or injustice system more than that. So your point is absolutely agreed to by me. Always a pleasure having you on the program, Eric. You give us such a great perspective on this. Thanks for this today. Thank you, Bill. Take care. Ari, uh, of course, uh, Goldkind, Toronto defense lawyer, uh, talking about uh, Kareem Baratop. But certainly, uh, I love the way we can dovetail into other aspects of the criminal justice system, too, that are so relevant to uh, what's going on. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.